Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, and actually during the month of September, we're going to be looking at the first three verses. And it sounds like not a lot of material to look at over the course of a month, but I think we'll see as we study it together. There's a lot of truth packed into these three verses. We're going to be looking at this brief passage from a number of different angles. This is a passage that the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, looked at as part of our preparation for developing a new vision statement as uh, we plan for the future ministry of the church. So we thought it was important to spend some time digging into this passage. Isaiah 61, and I'm going to read the first three verses. This is God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Well, undoubtedly, like many of you, over the last couple of weeks, I've been watching the political conventions for the Republican and Democratic parties. I oddly find myself enjoying those on a very superficial level because it's somehow inspiring to see people that are good at making speeches, many of them are, giving passionate pleas for their vision for the future. That's something that resonates with me, something that I look for in leadership, as somebody who's passionate about a vision for the future and can communicate that well and inspire people to go after it. But probably like many of you, I also come away from watching those speeches at those conventions a little disappointed. Because, to be honest, a lot of it seems like a lot of superficial and empty slogans and a lot of ridiculing of the opponent and a lot of posturing. Reminds me of a movie that I saw, actually, when I was a teenager. It came out, um, I didn't see it in the theater, I saw it on television years later. Uh, it came out in the early 70s. It's a pretty obscure movie. If you're a Robert Redford fan, you might know the movie. It's called The Candidate. In that movie, Robert Redford plays a young, idealistic lawyer who um, is co-opted by some of the party machine leaders to run for a seat in the Senate against an incumbent, a popular incumbent, and everybody, the handlers, the advisors, as well as the candidate himself, everybody understands that he really doesn't have a chance against this popular incumbent. But he enters into the race anyway, and the main reason he wants to enter into the race because he figures as an idealist, here's a chance for me to get a public forum to talk about my great ideas. 
Well, as the campaign goes along, everybody's surprised as his numbers start to rise in the polls. And as they get close to the end of the race, the handlers and advisors for this candidate begin to believe that he actually might win this thing. And so they start to kick into gear and they start trying to reshape him and teach him how to play the political games and he learns how to manipulate the message and and talk to the crowd and play all those political games that candidates do. And then, as you come to the end of the movie, and I'll never forget the the last scene, and I'm sorry if you're ever interested in seeing I'm going to ruin the final scene for you here, but in that final scene, as the campaign comes to the night of the election, as they're waiting for the results, the candidate and his advisors and his handlers and his campaign workers, a lot of them are crowded into his hotel room, and they're watching the results on the television as they come in. And lo and behold, as they come in, he ekes out a victory over this incumbent. And everybody's celebrating, and everybody's excited, and they all start to leave the hotel room to go downstairs to the ballroom to have the big party to celebrate his unexpected victory. But the movie ends with his closest advisor and his main handler starting to leave the room and turning around and looking at the candidate sitting on the end of his bed. And the candidate looks up at his handler, and he has this hopelessly lost look on his face. And he says, what do we do now? And I thought, what a powerful final scene, and what an indictment of what the political process really has become in so many ways. But as I thought about that scene, I thought about that movie, I thought about the goals in our own lives. We do hunger to be led by people with vision. We long to have a dream for the future that we believe is possible to attain. We are not animals, like some would tell us we are. We are people made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, we need a hope for the future. Something to hold on to, to drive us, to make us get up in the morning, to do what we do, to face life in a fallen and sinful world. But a lot of the goals, if you think about it, a lot of the goals that drive us forward in our lives really shouldn't be the final goal. Some of these goals we think through and embrace for ourselves. Some of them are imposed upon us by our parents or our teachers or some other mentor. Or maybe just society in general. One of those goals is be popular. Another goal is get a college degree. Another goal is get a good job. Get married. Get a mortgage. Have kids, raise a family, see the world, retire comfortably. These are all goals that make us get up in the morning. But they're not ultimate goals. Because, for one thing, some of us chase those goals our whole life and for some reason or another we don't ever attain them. But even if we do attain them, those of you that have attained a number of those goals, you've checked off a number of those boxes in your life, Don't you get to them and you kind of sit in the edge of your bed in the morning and you say, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? Because those things aren't intended to be ultimate goals. When you become a Christian, you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you get a whole new set of intermediate goals added to your life. 
You know, go find a good church, find a good small group Bible study, learn to read your Bible every morning and pray every day and learn how to share your faith and win somebody to the Lord. Find out what your spiritual gift and put it into action. These are all boxes we check off as disciples of Christ. But again, those aren't ultimate goals because you can get there and say, okay, I've done that. What do I do now? Where do I go from here? And it happens to churches too. Churches get caught up in what I'm calling intermediate goals. We want a worship service of a thousand people. We want a big new building. We want a vibrant youth program. We want an educational program for all ages that's top-notch. And none of these are bad goals. They're all good goals, but understand they're intermediate goals. And in and of themselves, don't really indicate whether this ministry is a good, solid, God-pleasing, Christ-honoring ministry. Well, as the leadership here talked about vision, goals, where are we going? It was important to us that we understand from God's perspective, what is the ultimate vision for the church of Jesus Christ? Not what are all these intermediate goals. What is the Lord doing in the church? Where is he going with the church? What's his vision for the church? And as we studied that, we ended up here in Isaiah 61. And it's not surprising we end up at the end of the book of Isaiah because the prophecy given to Isaiah is one of the most visionary portions of all of Scripture. Some glorious visions of God's plan for the church are portrayed here. And when you think about the Creator's vision for His people, it really is all about hope and change, isn't it? It's all about hope and change. If you put yourself just for a moment back in the days of Isaiah, Isaiah was prophesying at a very bleak time in the history of God's people, in the history of the Old Testament nation of Israel. Very bleak time. They had come under judgment for their idolatry and their worldliness and their sin to the point where now they were divided into two nations. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel had become so rebellious and idolatrous and under the judgment of God that God sent this vicious nation, empire against them, the kingdom of Assyria. They had marched through and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel just before the time of Isaiah's prophecies. And lo and behold, during Isaiah's ministry, this powerful kingdom of Assyria made itself all the way down to the very gates of Jerusalem and were on the verge of extinguishing the people of God. But God intervened. And he, in the days of King Hezekiah, saved the remnant of God's people there in Jerusalem, sent Assyria away, and did away with them as a threat. But if you know the rest of the story, it was only a temporary reprieve. And really, a lot of Isaiah's prophecy, especially in the middle section, is basically saying, you've dodged a bullet, but look out, because here comes the empire of Babylon. And Babylon is going to bring judgment, 
because you did not repent, because this revival did not stick, because you went back to your sinful ways, your rebellious ways, and your idolatrous ways, Babylon is going to come and decimate the country and take you all away into captivity. Sounds like God's people needed a vision for the future at that point. It's interesting to me that that's the point at which Isaiah is prophesying, just before 700 B.C., okay? 700 years before the time of Christ. At that point, we know, because we know the rest of the Old Testament story, we know that Israel was never a great nation or a great kingdom from that point on. After Babylon took away the captives, from that point on, they were always some weak little vassal state at the at the total uh, mercy of some great empire, world empire. And here's Isaiah sent as a prophet to God's people to encourage the faithful remnant. But what's fascinating to me is as you come to the end of the book of Isaiah, is it's some of the most glorious portrayals of the future of God's people you're going to find anywhere. He was a visionary and he effectively communicated God's vision for God's people. Here at the end of Isaiah. And that's why we look there to see how to plan for the church of Jesus Christ. Because we don't make our plans and then go ask the Lord to bless those plans. That's not how we do business. You know, Connell mentioned our building program. We are hoping to build onto the building here. And when we do that, we talk about what we'd like to do and what we'd come up with a design of what kind of a building we would like to see in place here. And then we go to the powers that be, the authorities and the township officials, and we say, here's what we'd like to do. Will you please give your blessing to it? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But that's not how we do business in the kingdom of God. We don't say, here's what we want to do, God. Here, here's our plans. Could you please bless these for us? Or is that really what we do much of the time? You think about your plans for the future. Is that what you're doing with your plans? When you pray about your plans for the future, are you going to the Lord and saying, God, here's what I want to do. Please bless this. Please make it happen. I'll be good. I'll pay my tithe. Please make it happen. That's not the way we should think about the future. We should be going to the Lord and saying, where are you going? What are you doing? And I want to be a part of it. Please put me in the middle of it. Help me to experience what you're doing and to do my part by your grace to help make it happen. And so here, that's what Isaiah is doing to the people of God. In this very bleak, depressing time, he's going to them and saying, here's what God is doing. Here is what's coming. Yes, hard times are coming. Judgment is coming. You're going to go away into captivity. You're going to suffer. But something far greater is going to happen to God's people. And by faith, you can be a part of it. And what's interesting to me is you look at chapter 61. We're kind of jumping right into the middle of this whole visionary section. What's interesting to me is that when Isaiah wants to point the people of God to this great and glorious future, he points to a person. He always points to a person. Want to talk about the future? It's always about a person. And here in verse 1, he calls him... The Lord's anointed one. Verse 1, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
The idea of anointing is kind of foreign to our culture. We don't anoint our leaders. But back in the Old Testament, if you were a prophet, a priest, or a king, the way that you were acknowledged as one who is chosen by God and empowered by God and giving authority by God is that you were anointed with oil. And that oil represented the Holy Spirit coming upon you to give you the power, to give you the authority, to act as God's representative. And so... Isaiah is saying that there is an anointed one coming who would speak God's word and he would speak with the power and authority of God himself. Now, if you just started reading at this point, it would be tempting to think that he's talking about himself. He was a prophet. Prophets were anointed. He could be the anointed one of which he speaks. That's why I'm going to take just a few minutes now, and I want to go back to the beginning of Isaiah and show you that Isaiah is not pointing to himself, but he's pointing to a far greater prophet to come. One, you know, the word Messiah, we talk about Messiah. We call Jesus Christ the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. And it's that Messiah that he's talking about. Let me take you back to the beginning of Isaiah. Remember, it's really in Isaiah 6 where he receives his calling to be a prophet, where he sees the holy, holy, holy one on his throne in heaven. And is sent to bring a message to God's people. But then pick it up in in chapter 7 of Isaiah. And some of these verses are going to be very familiar to some of you. Some of you maybe you've not heard these before. But understand that this is the one to whom Isaiah has been pointing to all through his prophecy from beginning to end. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It was one of his first prophecies. And he's making an amazing statement that a virgin is going to give birth to a son. It's going to be a miracle, a miraculous birth. And that son, in some way that I'm sure Isaiah didn't fully understand, is going to be the presence of God in the midst of God's people. And if you want any more detail later on in chapter 9, Beginning in verse 6, this is what he tells us about that son, born of a virgin, who is the presence of God. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This virgin-born son, who is the presence of God in the midst of God's people, is going to take the throne and reign over God's people as the heir of David's kingdom forever. And we would look to that son as God himself. Now remember, Isaiah is writing this 700 years before Christ is born. Then, over in chapter 11, he talks again about this Messiah. And he lays out this picture of God's people because of the judgment. This is what's happening in his day. Because of God's judgment against them for their sin and apostasy and idolatry, he compares them to a tree being cut down so that there's only a stump left. But then he brings in the vision of the future, the promise Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. 
therefore one of the line of King David, the royal line of God's people. A shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he will judge, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then he gives this vision. Talk about a visionary statement. This is one of the greatest vision statements I've ever read. It starts in verse 6. The wolf shall lie down, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." That's what the effect of this virgin-born God-son taking his throne will be, is that the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth and the effects of the fall, the sin and conflict, all the effects of sin will be taken away. And the earth will be restored as it was in the beginning. Then, over in chapter 40... The next section of Isaiah deals a lot with judgment of God upon the unfaithful of his own day. But when you get to section 40, the message changes a bit and focuses upon this deliverance that he's holding out, the hope of deliverance to these people. Again, it's not a hope of some great earthly kingdom because that never happened. It's a hope of a much greater deliverance than what they would have, they would need from Babylon. It would be a spiritual deliverance. And that's what he, Refers to in chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, equal justice for her sins. Her sins have been paid for. And that, of course, leads us to chapter 53. 53 chapter 53 is the heart of Isaiah's prophecy. You know that chapter if you've known the Lord very long at all. Because there Isaiah describes in amazing detail the suffering, the beatings, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Again, written 700 years before any of this ever happened. Let me read to you beginning of verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel that Paul wrote about in the book of Romans. Not only does Isaiah give incredible detail that matches up so perfectly with what the gospel writers tell us about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. 
But he even writes about the importance of it, the theology of it, the meaning of it in the eyes of God, the way that Paul writes about it in the book of Romans. He died for us. He hung on the cross in our place. He bore our sins in his body as he hung on the cross. He was punished in our place and our sin was paid for in full. And then Isaiah talks about his resurrection beginning in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. That's why based on that, Again, still 700 years in the future. That's why Isaiah says, if you put your hope in this coming Messiah, if you put your hope in him, then you can be forgiven. You can be made right before God. And that's why he says in chapter 55, beginning in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Why? Because the suffering servant has died for our sins and paid the price in full. You see, this is all leading up to chapter 60, 61, 62 that talks about this glorious Vision of the coming perfect kingdom. It's all based on the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the anointed one. And this is the one that Isaiah is referring to when he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And lest you think that we Jesus followers are making this up, Let me take you to Luke chapter 4. When Jesus first went public, had his first sermon during his earthly life, he stood up in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And this is what happened on that day. Listen carefully. This is Luke 4 beginning in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He preached on Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. And notice what happened next. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can you feel the tension? You could hear a pin drop in the room. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Could he say it any more clearly? He was saying to God's people, I am the anointed one that Isaiah was talking about all through his prophecy. I am the virgin born Emmanuel. I am the branch from the stump of Jesse. I am the suffering servant who died to redeem God's people. I am the anointed one who brings good news that will transform God's people. 
And that brings us to the message. We're going to look at the message next week. But let me just say quickly, as you notice what the effect of the good news is, is that it is transformative. It is. Don't lose sight of this. This is the word of God that makes this transformation happen. The transformation he describes. It says that the Messiah's word will bring healing. Broken hearted people, not just broken people physically, but broken hearted people will be made well. The Messiah's word will bring deliverance. Captives will be set free. Prisoners will be set free. And again, he's primarily thinking of spiritual prisoners and spiritual captives, not literal. In other words, addicted to sin. A slave to your, the, the lusts of your flesh. The passions of your sinful nature. He will deliver you and give you victory over sin. And thirdly, the Messiah's word will bring comfort. Why are we comforted in the midst of our sin and the effects of sin, the sins of others against us? Because Christ is who Isaiah says he is. He is the one who has come to put away sin once and for all. The effects of sin are reversed and the process of restoration of the entire universe begins in the hearts of God's people. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that brings me to that last phrase in verse 3. The effect of the word of the good news of Christ's ministry. The effect of the message of the gospel is, as it says in Isaiah 61.3, that they may be called oaks of righteousness that they may be called oaks of righteousness. There you have God's vision statement for his church. That's not an intermediate goal. That's a final goal. That's what he's working toward in the world, is to make his people as oaks of righteousness. We have some pretty big trees around here, and we know, especially in the United States, of some trees that are bigger and stronger than oaks, but not in the times and the places of the Bible. The oak trees were the big trees, the strong trees. Matter of fact, they were so big, they were landmarks to the people. When Abraham came to the promised land, it said he first set up his tents next to the oak of Morah. That's because the oak of Morah was so big and beautiful and powerful, and it was always there, so it was a good landmark. When Abraham and Lot divided up the promised land, Abraham set up his tents by the oaks of Mamre. And that's where the Lord appeared to him with the three angels. And you know when David defeated Goliath, do you know where that happened geographically? In the Valley of Elah. Do you know what the word Elah means in Hebrew? Oaks. In the Valley of Oaks, David, soon to be king of God's people, defeated Goliath the champion of the forces of darkness in the Valley of Oaks. An oak to the people of God and even to their neighbors was a symbol of strength and stability and longevity. Matter of fact, it was such a strong image and symbol that being the pagans that they were, the neighbors of Israel worshipped oak trees. Matter of fact, over Isaiah actually makes a reference to that back in chapter 1. He actually condemns the people of Jerusalem because they had become uh, idolaters because they had fallen into the sin of 
worshiping these oak trees like their neighbors did. Let me just read to you that uh, part of chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, to the, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. He's saying, if you worship oaks, you're going to be like a dead oak. But if you trust in me and in my anointed one, my Messiah, then I will make you like oaks of righteousness. As I thought about that, I was interested by how that kind of parallels how we treat the goals. God's goal for us is to become like oaks of righteousness in his eyes, but we can actually treat these intermediate goals I was talking about earlier, we can treat them like their end goals and actually end up worshiping them. A lot of intermediate goals we have in life that become idols and we become idolaters to them. Things like the way that we run or work out at the gym in order to be physically strong or the way that we diet in order to be physically attractive or even spiritually speaking, the way that we go to church regularly in order to be seen as spiritual. These are intermediate goals. They're good goals in and of themselves, but when you make them final goals, they become idols and we become idol worshipers. And so God says, you want to be oaks? You want to be strong? You want to be stable? You want to be secure? You want to be uh, long-lived? Then listen to my Messiah. Listen to my anointed one. Listen to Jesus Christ. You see, the tragedy is that many professing Christians invite Christ into their life in order to help them reach their goals. We invite Christ into our life so that we can find meaning and purpose and strength and security in this world. When what Isaiah is saying to us is, Find your meaning and purpose and strength and security and longevity in him. And the result of putting your faith in him is that you will become like oaks of righteousness. Our goal is to know Christ and be like Christ. That's how we glorify God. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, if you want to add that phrase, which I think is always important. But we glorify God by knowing Christ and being like Christ. Our new vision statement includes that phrase that we long to be oaks of righteousness, called by our Lord oaks of righteousness. What we're saying by that is that when we plan ministry as leaders in the church, we're saying that we're not going to measure our success by how many heads there are in the building on Sunday morning. We're not going to measure it by how big our building is. We're not going to measure it by how many youth programs we have. We're not going to measure it by how many um, ministries in the community that we have. Those are all good goals, but they're intermediate goals. We understand that according to the vision that God lays out for us in the book of Isaiah, that our goal is to be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, his work, reflecting his righteousness so that he might be glorified. That is where our life and our strength and our stability comes from. Let's pray. Father, help us 
to make not plans our goal, but make Christ our goal. Help us to keep our focus upon him, to draw near to him, to listen to him, and to be changed by his word so that we might become the oaks of righteousness that Isaiah portrays. Thank you, Lord, for this work of grace that you've begun in us. We trust in you to complete it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.